Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, an update on BAE Systems land warfare programs. But first, my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us. Greetings from Connecticut. Uh, always, always a pleasure having you on. Uh, and before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Raphael USA sponsored our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's recent 2021 annual meeting and trade show. Uh, Byron, you know, it's earnings season. We heard from the roundtable yesterday. Uh, what some of the issues are going to be, obviously, inflation and labor costs are going to be um, stuff that's going to be on the table. From your perspective, what are you going to be tracking as we go into what should be a, a fairly robust, pretty profitable earnings season, especially for the Defense Aerospace Group? Well, a couple of thoughts. I, you know, I'd agree those two issues are watch items. I think, you know, we still have budget uncertainty. We've got a continuing resolution through December 3rd, but what happens after that, you know, and that that's just a moving target. Um, the treasury outlays were released for September Friday uh, at two o'clock and they showed actually investment was down a bit um, in, in the last quarter. I don't read too much into that Fago because I think um, there's this quirky thing that was going on with Army EDT&E, which instead of an outlay, it was actually an inflow. There must have been some credit or some balance that was going on. So, I mean, I don't think there's any reason to expect, you know, that a lot of these contractors won't be reporting anything other than kind of low to mid single digit sales growth. But, you know, the, the outlay data is something that people look at. I know O&M uh, numbers were up 3%. So, uh, you know, th those are those are two items. There, there's one other I can talk about if if you want to continue on this on this path. Talk to us a little bit about uh, share box and your concerns with it, right? I mean, this is a recurring issue for anybody who reads your research. It's been a longstanding concern of yours about whether or not that's actually the value add that companies make it out to be, right? I mean, it's 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 kind of a simple lever that everybody pulls, and so far, candy comes shooting out. From your standpoint, what are the problems with this approach? Because you wrote about it in uh, today's note again. Well, I mean, I get it. You know, you're 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 buying your share uh, back to reduce the dilution that comes uh, to earnings per share from executive compensation awards. And you know, there's a theory that uh, you know, as an owner of a company, if if someone's you know the company's buying back stocks, it increases your relative stake in that company. But, you know, at the same time, it's an opportunity cost. And, you know, I grew up in an era, you know, in the 1980s, 1990s, when people used to do kind of Dutch auctions or, or kind of one-time buybacks when they, they signaled, they were signaling that basically they thought their stock was, was very depressed. Um, now, you know, they're kind of habitual, you know, without a lot of mind to, to value all the time. And, you know, I, I point out what I pointed out in the note is, you know, I expect we will again see another pretty robust quarter for share buybacks by the large defense primes. But 
there's a lot of investment going on in areas that conceivably these companies could also be participating in. They're not. Um, you know, I pointed out that uh, if you look at the space, the number of space SPACs, um, you know, that's a vehicle for, for basically <clears throat> space startups to, to raise capital. Um, right. The this, special, know, special purpose acquisition that companies that yeah. become all rage now across virtually every market segment. Uh, I guess uh, the former President Trump also uh, just did a SPAC in order to raise money for uh, yeah. his uh, media empire. Yeah. Well, those, you know, I think in 2021, you've had over $4.2 billion um, go in, raised in these space SPACs. And these are markets that, in some ways, you know, will directly compete and maybe complement some of the stuff that the large defense contractors are doing. And then, you know, there are just other news on financial rounds uh, that have been raised by Saildrone, which is a really interesting uh, kind of surface surveillance company that, that has some real intriguing defense applications. And Comtech, uh, which also addresses defense markets, they had announced uh, earlier this year a venture with with Chimeta, you know, Chimeta has also um, got an IDIQ contract with the Air Force for SATCOM antennas, um, kind of a very new, innovative company. And they, Comtech announced a $100 million investment uh, by, by an outside group. So, you, you, you know, you just see these things and go, you, you know, for the large contractors, you, you know, the one thing that's really um, happening on steroids, there's a lot of change going on there. And I think just sitting back and buying back stock, it may be the least risky path for these companies to take. But, um, you know, doing that can frankly open up risks, you know, to their business models, to their out your profitability, to, to the kind of competitor set they're going to see. So um, I, I just, again, point this out and you know, my career, Vago, I think of, uh, you know, General Dynamics when they sold off all their businesses. I haven't done the math on this, but this was back in the early 1990s. Um, you know, they sold uh, Fort Worth to Lockheed. And I just wonder, like, if you did the net present value that that kind of the, the short term value that was created in General Dynamics stock by that transaction and then they repurchase their own stock, uh, short their balance sheet, you know, and then look at the value that they lost by selling Fort Worth to Lockheed and then Lockheed subsequently right. winning F-35. I mean, it's, it's pales, it's, it's minuscule. So, you know, these short-term gains, I think when you think longer term about actually investing and growing a business, um, I, I'd rather see the latter than, than the former. Um, you know, what's your sense on where we're going on labor costs and on inflation, if and if there is worrying for you as they are for others? Um, look, I don't have a strong view. You know, is this really kind of a temporary manifestation uh, as a result of the pan the global pandemic that's still going on? I mean, you hear all these crazy stories about you know real problems even in in getting shipping containers. So. Um, you know, you can see that from time to time. If you try and buy anything new these days, uh, there may be a, a wait, a, a very long wait. Um, everything from, you know, cell phones to furniture to, you know, parts that go in the, in the defense kit. Um, will it sort itself out? I think it will. Um, now, the labor, the labor stuff, I think, is actually more interesting because it really is, to me, kind of a reset 
in labor costs, um, really up and down the scale. And, and so I'm not, I get it, like for investors, you know, there can be operating profit margin pressure. Um, you know, if wages are going up, you know, profits will probably suffer as a result of that. But, but ultimately, that money's going to get spent somewhere. Um, it, it's not going to be buried in the backyard in a, in a, in a, in a, in a you know, mayonnaise jar. So um, you, you would think that wages going up would actually be a healthy sign for the economy and, I, and as well for ultimately for tax revenues. So I, um, I don't see that as, as kind of an evil or a big problem, uh, you know, that, that everybody should be quaking their boots over. Walk us through your joint all domain command and uh, control analogy, your JADC2 analogy, I should say. L3 Harvard sponsors our JADC2 coverage. Uh, but what was the home appliance JADC2 analogy uh, you made in your note? I thought it was. Uh, yeah, it was great. on my mind because I recently listened to someone talk about, you know, JADC2 in defense and, you know, why is this such a difficult problem for defense? And that person pointed out that, well, it's because defense keeps things uh, around for a long time. You know, their systems that are more than 20 years old, they were fielded at a time when there wasn't an internet. And you were talking about shortages. Um, you know, my wife and I made the decision uh, back in August that we have, we have an older electric oven. Um, we better replace it just in case um, it decides to, to you know, uh, die uh, around the holiday season. So we, we, you know, place an order for one. And of course, you know, all these appliances now are network enabled, you know, you tie into the Wi-Fi system in your home. And it, it just kind of struck me that, you know, there's an analogy with the Department of Defense that, hey, if I suddenly wanted to link everything in my home so it was all on the same network and platform. And, you know, if, if I was away and wanted to, you know, turn on the coffee maker, turn the heat up, um, uh, you know, make sure that uh, the, the bath temperatures is the right level and start dinner, I'd have to link all those appliances um, on a common network, on a common platform. And you know, maybe there's someone out there who sells those types of modules um, and you could certainly find the network backbone to do that, but um, there'd be a cost to that. And as I said, you know, some of these systems are probably not even meant or designed right. to, to transmit the data that <clears throat> they gather and, and, accept, and accept the commands that, it, that, are, uh, that are inputted to them. So I, I think, you know, there's an analogy there. It's a pretty loose and stupid one in some ways, but I've got to believe that defense is not the only sector that is confronting this problem. Um, you think about utilities, uh, the energy sector. Um, I heard an analogy on a factory that was running on old Plessy um, processors. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> so like a lot of things in defense, I, I would hope that, you know, as much as DOD leadership is, is absolutely embraced JADC2, as a path to uh, sustain military advantage, that they really do look at <clears throat> what are some of the other approaches that commercial sectors have taken, recognizing absolutely that no one's going to be trying to bomb your uh, or, or you know um, use electronic warfare to jam your your network and and take out your nodes with kinetic action. But uh, you know there 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 probably are some technologies and con concepts that that could be applicable to defense. 
um, I, I think I think that the Chinese and Russians would take a great interest, depending on if they could get into the right home uh, through those uh, conduits. I, I see the yin and yang of this. On the one hand, right, commercial world is interconnecting more. That's very attractive for some folks at DOD to try to execute this through non-traditional suppliers. I can also see this from the standpoint of traditional suppliers who get very worried uh, competitively when the customer stops talking as much about security as it does about connectivity. And the challenge, obviously, the Defense Department has is it needs to have that kind of ubiquitous connectivity without the security challenges that that then opens up, right? And so that's the sort of the the, the tension. Uh, let's uh, quickly walk through the week ahead and uh, what you're uh, tracking. What's on your agenda? What should the audience be paying attention to? Look, there are a couple of things that I think, you know, the usual round of hearings, uh, Senate Armed Services holds a hearing on Afghanistan and uh, kind of the broader security issues in South and Central Asia on Tuesday. There's a House Appropriations Committee on the DOD workforce, and then there's a House Armed Services Committee on depot modernization. Uh, those happen on Tuesday and Thursday, respectively. Um, the uh, Mitchell Institute is gonna release a report on and hold an event on the future fighter roadmap for the Air Force. So I always look forward to the, the very fine work that they do. And then um, Wes Kramer of Raytheon Technologies is going to be speaking uh, at Atlantic Council on Thursday. Uh, he's going to be talking about kind of digital design engineering at, at Raytheon, and I think kind of how that's that's changing uh, the way the way they do business. And, I, and that's another important theme for defense because, you know. You should, these companies adopting these, you know, the Textron certainly has, has talked about this a lot, but I think it's, um, it, you know, it's a way to reduce costs. It's a way to update um, these platforms a lot faster and, and make design changes. And it really, it, you know, it, it's good to see uh, the defense sector embrace this as, as a way to do, do things better. Uh, I should uh, also point out uh, that uh, what LIWS also uh, has an event that folks should be paying attention to, that the Mitchell Institute uh, report was released today with uh, General Grace Kelly, the Air Combat Command right. uh, commander, being uh, the, the guest. So folks should tune into that because like every Mitchell event, it's worth your time. Talk to us uh, briefly about the LIWS uh, product that's going to oh, be it's, released. Oh, it's just the launch of their annual strategic survey um, you know, which is really kind of the, the, the big picture about what's going on in the global geopolitical environment. And that clearly uh, has, has a bearing on, uh, you know, how people should think about the this, this security threat environment and, you know, what are the implications of, of COVID, um, you know, the fiscal stresses that that's and, and societal stresses that's that entailed. So uh, that's being launched in London, but I think they're doing an event <laughs> that'll be broadcast eight o'clock Eastern time on Wednesday. Thanks very much for the week ahead and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks a lot. Safe travels, Vago. And a word from our sponsors, General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. L3 Harris, as I mentioned, sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. And Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. And joining me now is my good friend, Mark Signorelli, a retired United States Army soldier who is the Vice President for Business Development at, at BA Systems Land uh, Systems Business. Uh, Mark, it's an absolute pleasure uh, to see you. It's been two years since we've met face-to-face, -face and you're looking great. 
Thanks, Vago. It's good to see you again. It's, it's good to see all these people again. I think it's uh, been quite an experience for all of us to get back into uh, real human contact again. Uh, absolutely, and it wouldn't be AUSA unless we had the Mark and Vago show. Uh, so I wanted to get your uh, sense, right? Um, you know, senior Army leadership, well represented despite all the challenges of COVID uh, uh, and a lot of folks who've been walking the floor. From your standpoint, as somebody who's in this business and on the ground vehicle side of things, um, you know, what are some of the messages you heard from senior leadership that'll help shape your guys' strategy going forward? So I think, uh, you know, I think the chief said it, uh, you know, in his, his, uh, his speech. He, he, we're starting to get some clarity around legacy, enduring, and modernization programs. And, uh, and it's really helpful for us as we think about what the business going forward looks like. Uh, where the Army really wants to go. And I think we found that we always knew this. We, had, we have platforms, we have products in all of those buckets. Fortunately for us on the floor here, we have one of the modernization priorities, the uh, AMPV. We've got a production AMPV sitting here. Uh, and so we're glad about that. Uh, but we're, we're, it's really helpful to understand where the Army's thinking is going there. Um, well, let me ask you along those lines, right? I mean, a very good uh, Army friend who I've known for a very, very long time said, look, we, we suffer from next programitis, right? No sooner do we start executing and getting something on the rails that we in the Army go, hey, it's, it's time for the, for the new thing. And you guys straddle that, right? You have the Archer uh, cannon system, certainly a very, very impressive system coming from uh, the, the Bofors uh, uh, and Haglund's uh, spirit uh, that you have in the company. You guys are doing AMP-V, which is giving new life to to thousands of Bradleys that are going to be in the inventory to finally replace the M113, which I started my career uh, starting about the replacement program for the M113, right? We still have 10,000 or more <laughs> 113s in the force uh, doing everything from mortar to uh, command post. Um, what, what's the right approach to balancing this? Because you guys can do new, um, just like a lot of companies here, but you can also do legacy and the adaptation of legacy and keeping legacy current. What's the right balance and mix? And when you talk to uh, your old compatriots and you talk to the customer, like what are the, some of the conversations you guys have on that to make sure that the things that are actually working now don't end up being relegated to the past before their time? Yeah, I, I think in, in obviously we've suffered through some of those programs that never made it past gestation, right? Uh, and what we've really been able to do, I think, is take a lot of the technology, a lot of the development effort, and keep it uh, available apply it to other platforms, other upgrade opportunities. Uh, and at some point, you I think you do realize that I've modernized, I've modernized, I've modernized. Now there's a new technology that pushes me over. Now it's time for a new platform. It's a very hard thing to predict. Uh, those sort of revolutionary technologies, uh, when you don't predict them coming, they, they show up. But, but what we've tried to do is always have that pipeline of integration opportunities and capabilities that can be applied selectively uh, depending on need, requirements, uh, technology growth. Um, we uh, talked to Major General Ross Kaufman, uh, who is the Next Generation Combat Vehicle Cross-Functional Team Director at the United States Army's Futures Command. Uh, fortunately, as he uh, concedes, that's not a mouthful. Uh, shout out to you, uh, Ross. Um, 
Where do you see the Army going, right? I mean, it is a very ambitious uh, plan the Army has for future vehicles. Uh, there is hybrid propulsion that's going to be in there. Every soldier acknowledges that having a, a giant diesel engine rumbling somewhere and track noise and everything else, you know, if you can get an electric uh, or hybrid drive and be silent when you need to be silent, especially in an Overwatch mode, that's important. Um, where do you see and, and, and your thoughts on what the Army's strategy is going forward for its next generation of, of, of vehicles from the standpoint of one of the guys who's most interested in, in the outcome of that competition. Very interested for some, for some reason. Uh, so I think, I think there's, there's some very good things about the program. I think the Army's thinking around collecting these concept designs from multiple sources. What do they look like? Uh, giving us some freedom around requirements and performance specifications. I, th I think that's a really good start to the program. Uh, and I think that what I've heard the chief say is, we're going to get this right, uh, which I think is a really good way to think about this program as well. Now that may cause the program to change over time, uh, but I think those two things, having that good understanding of the concepts, and the desire to get it right and fast, uh, not necessarily fast, I say, uh, is a really good place to be. Now, so, so you think the actual more methodical approach is a better approach, right? Because there are people who are pushing for speed, but in each of these, Wally Rugen on, on the future vertical lift said, hey, fast for its sake is no good if we end up in the wrong place, and we've ended up in the wrong place. So you think this slowness is a little bit better? I, I do think some deliberateness about the process is good. Uh, and I also think that, uh, you know, you can have it, you know, faster, you can have it good, right? I think what the Army are, really wants is the good, and they, wanna, they want a platform that will carry them for the next 30 or 40 years, like Bradley has for the last 30 or 40. Um, and that requires a more deliberate approach, I think. And so um, I think we're going to find ourselves in a balancing act. Uh, how fast can we go while maintaining some deliberateness about the process? Uh, but that tension's a little bit healthy, right? It, it pushes us all. And so I think we're going to see the program evolve. I, we're excited about it. And uh, a lot of the kind of technologies that we've been maturing uh, are starting to be really applicable to that kind of platform. All right, so talk to us a little bit about those technologies, right? Um, there is a sense that hybrid is going to be very important for this as, as a company. Um, you guys were more focused on hybrid before other people in the armored vehicle business were. Uh, obviously, BAE Systems does uh, buses and things like that on the commercial side of the business. Uh, what are some of the enabling technologies? You guys have been pouring a lot of investment into this. What are the places where you think you guys are going to have greatest advantage in a, in a future competition? So. So hard to tell advantage. Uh, I mean, some of the necessities, hyperelectric drive, we think is essential for the next generation of vehicles. Uh, we have a contract with RCCTO to build two hyperelectric Bradleys. Uh, and the approach that we've taken with uh, General Thurgood and his team are to take the most constrained environment we have, Bradley, put hyperelectric drive in there, but build that in such a way so that it is easily scalable to a variety of platforms. AMPV, M109A7, OMFV, and so we see that as a basic enabling technology, both for the mobility and performance, but also the ability to power a very electrically hungry set of sensors and weapons on the platform. So that's one. I think the other thing is uh, sensor technology. 
uh, we're looking for multi-mission kind of sensors uh, that we can uh, take the sensor data and parse it to different uh, sorts of needs on the vehicle, whether it's missile warning, situational awareness, a whole, a whole host of things that can be there. The, the other one is active protection. Uh, we cannot out-armor the threats. And so how do we integrate that layered protection concept that we started to talk about back in FCS days, talk about technology that we're bringing forward? Uh, you raise a very, very interesting point because if you look at the Army's modernization challenge, it's multiple armies, right? I mean, the Air Force and the Navy equipment set, it can be used against Russia easily, it can be used against China, it can be used in any high intensity conflict and everybody doesn't understand, you know, there's, there's really no peculiarity in that. Whereas in the Army's case, the equipment set, for example, you need in Europe is a different equipment set that you might be needing in the Pacific. Uh, a different equipment set as we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. From your sense, how's the, is the Army, how's the Army thinking about that? What is it communicating to you guys? Because vehicles of one size and flavor may not really be the right approach uh, depending on who you talk to, uh, given the kind of challenges that the United States Army has to face, for example, heavy armor over in, in Europe, but then a much more island-hopping, agile campaign, for example, in the Pacific. Well, I, th I think we see the Army executing that multiple environment kind of strategy. We all focus on OMFV, the heavy brigade combat team sort of stuff. MPF, Mobile Protected Fires, uh, is a new concept uh, for light forces. Uh, and so we're in the middle of that as well. Uh, so they're thinking about how do we enable those lighter forces, those more and more mobile forces, uh, provide them the kind of lethality that they need to be successful. And then the Army's recently published their uh, Arctic strategy, right? And so uh, we're working on the cold weather all-terrain vehicle, uh, CAT-V, uh, as, as an enabler for those Arctic kind of operations. So I think what we're seeing is the Army understands that there are these different operational environments. Uh, now, all of that constrained by the budget, but but they do understand that, and I think we're trying to trying to help them figure out how to how to address all of those different environments. Um, let me ask you uh, two last questions because you've got a hook and you've got your next meeting uh, you've got to go to. Uh, one, what do you sense as the budget environment? Um, on the one hand, Army leadership is telling us it's going to be leaner. If you listen to some folks on the Hill, it's like, hey, we've got your back. You know, we're going to plus you up. Uh, I think prudence is always the better part of valor. But where do you think the, the, the land uh, vehicle budget uh, and the Army budget overall is going to be going? So I, I, my crystal ball is cloudy, uh, and 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 I lost my Karnak hat. Uh, but um, at least you've got a good set of hair, though. You got that going for you. Uh, I, I think we are thinking about flat budgets, uh, you know, no real growth, um, and trying to understand what that does to our portfolio of products, what it does to the RV, and how they think about modernization. Uh, and how they prioritize programs. Um, I think we're trying to be as optimistic as we can, but also realistic uh, that the kind of growth that we had seen in the last several years is not likely to endure in the near to midterm. So. 
And uh, let me ask you, uh, there is a lot of cannon artillery on this floor for any red leg. It's a pretty exciting time. Obviously, Hanwha's got the K-9. Uh, we've got the Rheinmetall gun here. We've got uh, Elbit uh, displaying one. Uh, uh, the Rheinmetall is truck-mounted. Elbit is truck-mounted. And you guys have the, the Bofors, Haglunds, uh, uh, Archer here. What do you think gives what you're showing here the advantage? Well, for one thing, it's fielded and in service. Uh, so it's a mature product. Uh, it's flexible. Uh, we show, we're showing it here on the Volvo hauler chassis. Uh, we've also integrated it onto a manned truck. We're talking to other vehicle providers about potential integration. Uh, but it, it really sort of embodies that next generation of long-range fires, uh, long-range cannon fires. Very mobile, not across all terrain, but you don't always need that. Uh, shoot and scoot, fully automated, well-protected soldiers, automated resupply. And those are all capabilities that, you know, you can, you can go to Sweden and see, in fact, we have real Swedish soldiers here uh, manning the, the vehicle, telling their stories. And so I think there's, a, there's some real assurance that you can, you can do these kind of things and really achieve that. And, and we're excited. We just finished the firing tests out at Yuma for the uh, mobile howitzer shoot-off. And we're hopeful that we'll be participating in the next round of those, uh, that testing. Sir, always an honor and pleasure, Mark. Thanks so very much for making time for us and uh, already looking forward to the next engagement. Thanks so much again. Fago, I look forward to seeing you next year. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.